Welcome, everyone, to another episode of the Silicon Sasquatch podcast. I am Aaron Thayer, and joining me is Nick Cummings. That's me. So today we'll be talking about games as a spectator sport. It's something that's been gaining traction and popularity over the last few years, and something that is going to be a big aspect of the next console generation. Uh, I believe that PlayStation 4 will be using Ustream for uh, streaming games and gameplay, and the Xbox One will be relying on Twitch TV for the same thing. So... Full disclosure on my part, I really have no idea about this streaming culture or tournaments. As another example we'll be talking about, specifically the StarCraft II World Championship Series, which, as we record this, is still going on. So this is a whole new realm for me uh, of gaming and games culture. Nick, however, has been dipping his toes into this recently, and he has a lot to talk about. So, Nick, to, to get started here... What is this whole concept of games as a spectator sport? What draws you as a player to that? I think what appeals to me the most is that this is like any other sport that you watch. Is uh, You're watching someone who's better than you at something that's really hard to master doing something really well. Whether or not that's going to be appealing to you, I think, varies a lot depending on what the subject matter is. Like, I've seen some really great curling at the Olympics, but I will never, no matter how hard I try, ever want to get into curling or you know, watch it again. Uh, same could be said for baseball, to be honest. Like, you know, everyone has their different tastes here. But with games, it's a relatively new thing um, for a number of reasons. One is, it's up until this point, there really hasn't been in recent years, the infrastructure for people to uh, play these games competitively uh, in a scalable way or to broadcast it because it is such, you know, a relatively niche thing at this point. There's a good deal of money locked up in a lot of these tournaments, as anyone who's followed the um, GSL or World Championship Series stuff with StarCraft II, or uh, most recently this weekend with the uh, the third annual uh, Dota 2 International Championship. So the appeal comes down to a combination of things, which is basically pro-level play at a very complicated and nuanced game, wrapped up in the spectacle of like this one big event where there's a lot of money on the line, Years and years of practice have led people up to this point, and there's that that human drama of uh, win big or go home, basically. You might expect that the the most popular tournament-level games that would be broadcast and monitored and watched by lots of people would be like the top-selling games. Like, you, you know, for example, maybe you'd think a Call of Duty-style game would attract a huge uh, competitive presence, but in, in truth, right. it's actually not that big. The biggest tournaments seem to be locked up in real-time strategy and in MOBAs, which um can't for the life of me remember what MOBA stands for, but Defense of the Ancients, League of Legends, Heroes of New Earth, uh, etc. Uh, basically, any game with like a set of heroes battling another set of heroes in a static map, gaining resources, building up levels, and sparring to try to destroy the other person, other bases. Uh, kind of a real-time strategy background? Yeah, heavy on the RTS background. So, like we mentioned, the, the World Championship Series for StarCraft II is going on right now. Uh, that's being broadcast all over the internet. Uh, and as of last night, the International uh, has just concluded with uh, Alliance, a team from... God, I want to say Sweden. I'm such a terrible person at this. <laughs> Still more than I know. Yeah. Well, I'm not proud of this knowledge, but it is interesting. <laughs> um, so, Alliance... And I watched the, the last series for the finals here, which is actually really fascinating. Alliance beat out Navi, which were the uh, challengers who I was kind of rooting for. 
who I, I'm told are primarily from Ukraine. Again, I need to fact check this, but basically it's, it is an international gathering of Dota 2 teams. They're five man teams. And basically the winning team walked away with $1.2 million last night, which when split five ways is still quite a bit of change. So the stakes are pretty high and you can tell that when a game comes down to just one false move from five people all coordinating a big offensive and defensive battle, it gets kind of crazy and hectic. And there's probably a pretty significant barrier to entry as there would be learning any new complicated game or sport. Uh, I remember like my first couple of years of watching football not knowing what the hell was going on. And it kind of dawned on me after I watched a few games. Same thing happened with Dota. I went from kind of just casually not interested. It was a game I had in my Steam library. I never played it. To understanding why it's such a compelling and nuanced game. I find this all actually fascinating when you think about it. Because you might think of a gamer in two different ways. The solitary person who will play RPGs alone some games don't require or even have a multiplayer element to them. And then there are these other ones that do foster the team play, like you mentioned, first-person shooters such as Call of Duty, and then the StarCraft series, Warcraft, before it, uh, has the real-time team-building aspects that you can play in multiplayer, and the MOBA games came from a Warcraft 3 mod anyway. Yeah. So it seems like this whole tournament aspect of of video games is a newer thing but when you look at it video games have been aping and imitating real sports at almost ever since their inception i mean it's kind of this real world analog to go oh we can make a game have brackets like an ncaa tournament to make it more interesting or have a uh, kind of anchor to real sportsmanship but what is it about these games from your kind of introduction to this world that doesn't just, to me anyway, I would look at this and go, oh, I'm just going to watch some really good people play. And while that can be appealing just as watching the Oregon Ducks play Go Ducks, because you know, we're both from U of O. Let's go Ducks! Sorry. Yes. Uh, Not sorry. So, I feel like I should have a beer in my hand when I say that, but yeah. <laughs> well, I've got the beard, so at least I've got that. <laughs> So aside from watching talented people play, which is what all sports in some aspect are, the professional sports anyway, where do these gaming tournaments and professional gaming uh, spectator sports cross the line from just being, oh, it's a bunch of people playing or maybe dismissively nerds playing and make it actually something that's engaging? How do they present it? Like, how is it presented to make that interesting for the viewer? It's presented as... A big deal, uh, in the sense that the production's pretty, pretty robust. Uh, they, so for example, the international this year took place at Benaroya Hall in Seattle, which is, uh, incidentally where PAX is going to be partially taking place this year too. Uh, so it's no, it's no stranger to the, uh, the nerds, as you so derisively put it, which is a fair term, probably. <laughs> they have to, you know, they'll still be washing it out of the walls by the time PAX starts. Yeah, it's a, it's a thankless job, <laughs> but the production was pretty ornate. So the, the games are all broadcast over Twitch TV, and you can watch even within Dota 2 if you boot it up through Steam. And at its peak, there were hundreds of thousands of people watching at different points in the tournament. And the last the last game, I think, had well over 300,000 people watching, wow. which was uh, pretty astounding when you consider that this is the same night that Breaking Bad debuted. I actually paused Breaking Bad to finish the last game of the International. I was going to say, this is the new age of DVR, right? Yeah. So I think it's a combination of things. One is that they're, they're billing it as a big deal. And if you watch it, you see, you know, a panel of analysts like you'd see on like Sports Center 
uh, huddled around a table between matches. You see people going out into the uh, onto the stage to talk to players, interviewing winners and losers, talking to fans in the audience. Uh, there's a lot of wide-angle shots of the audience with all their flags and banners and signs and things rooting for their teams and making weird little internet meme jokes, whatever. So it's a big production. They really emphasize the fact that there are a lot of people here, there's a lot of conversation happening, and that it's kind of a big deal, basically, is what they want you to think. So that's one component, is that they really sell it that way. But the, the core of it, I think, the crux, and that what's been missing from games up until arguably the last 10 to 5 years, is that these are games that are so heavily balanced for replay and balanced for equality with 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 enough degree for variation that they are endlessly replayable and it comes down to a very intriguing combination with starcraft 2 and with dota 2 in particular of strategy and of reactions and ability to work with a team when you think of like a really easy to learn but lifetime to master style game like chess for example where there are just mathematically an incredible number of uh, games that can play out uh, these games are kind of like that in that same sense where there are basic tactics, there are classes of characters, you, there are certain techniques that are battle-tested and proven, but it all comes down to uh, execution in the moment. And once you watch a few games, get the basics of like what the goal is, what the factors in play are, what the uh, kind of tipping points look like, it really colors your experience a fair bit and makes it a much more engaging thing. Like I never thought I'd have fun watching StarCraft 2 being played or Dota 2. Uh, and they're games I'll never be great at just because of time investment and my reflexes aren't there. But uh, watching it in the in the frame of these are these teams, they're representing these countries, there's this big event, there's a lot of money on the line, and you can watch anytime you want. It's going on, you know, over this weekend. Like, that's pretty cool. So, I mean, that, that sounds absolutely interesting for those of us who I would say are familiar with the games and the culture a bit, but... You kind of mentioned that when you brought up uh, uh, chess as a comparison. That so we're talking about with these games, the appeal is tactical, right? Kind of the strategy. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, since if we're looking at this the way they seem to be treating it from an outside perspective, again, mine not really having been involved yet with this um, this kind of phenomenon lately. A lot of the physical prowess of sports is what entices viewers, people that at least during football season, you know, we'll be glued to the TV and sure it's, it's rooting for a team like be it here in Portland with the Timbers, even when the Timbers aren't doing well, which they are now, there's still the Timbers army to back them up just as all the football teams, even when they're really shitty, they have their just rabid fans supporting them. So there's that aspect of just rooting for a team, sticking with them and just having fun supporting that. But you know, there's the basic aspect of real sports, if you want to call that, which is not dismissive to these spectator ones uh, of gaming, but there's no physical prowess, really. So I guess my question is, do you have to have a knowledge of these games, be it Dota 2, uh, uh, StarCraft 2, and a knowledge of the tactics or a desire to just look at the strategy to care? Or do you think that these are slowly having a crossover appeal that could be more mainstream? I think there's still a big barrier there between the mainstream and the people who watch this stuff now. Like, um, mostly because it's, A, these games are unfamiliar to the broader public, and B, uh, when you're watching it, you're seeing the same interface for the most part for the players you're seeing. You know, it's, if you played RTSs since you were a kid, like you and me, you know, let's say you played Warcraft 2 20 years ago, you're gonna get the basic gist of what's happening within about 30 seconds. 
you see units that are being selected. There's a mouse driving things. There's a mini map, etc. But for the broader public, none of this stuff makes any sense. And I think that's where there's the biggest hurdle to cross. The other one would be there are personalities in esports, but by and large, my perception is that they're not very. It's not the same as like not a level of charisma that you have with the other players of real sports. Yeah, it's it's a situation where there's just not a whole lot of exposure to interviews and talking about what you do. Like games are still, call them what you will, but they're still largely taboo in most places. And like, if imagine telling your parents that you're quitting your job to pursue a career in professional Team Fortress Two play with the hope of possibly winning like fifty thousand dollars a year if you are the best in the world. <laughs> I mean, it might be as well. It'll be more laughable, but it's probably still kind of as laughable as someone saying I'm going to be a pro baseball player when they're 28. But maybe. I mean, again, there's a physical barrier to entry there, whereas with games, it's only it's much more about mental acuity and, uh, you know, manual reflexes with a keyboard and mouse. So do you think, uh, maybe kind of moving this to also another topic that um, you and I were discussing before we started recording, so if you have no physical acuity, you can't be a pro hockey player, whatever you want to be, it's not like... The, the argument I'm trying to make is that you go straight to starting MOBA games and you're going to be a pro. But do you think that it's maybe more forgivable or perhaps easier to break into even the basic lower rungs or mid-tier players of games, even though the best will always still be the best, that that could be why there's stuff like um, the gambling aspect and Salty Bet, which has just launched recently, that there's an interest and a desire that if you can't be the best of the best in these tournament games, you can still be kind of good enough to do these betting aspects. Like, how do these all tie together, and where's the influence coming from? So, Salty Bet is a whole crazy bag of cats. I don't know what the fuck that thing is about. (laughs) Salty Bet, for those of you who haven't heard about it, I picked up on it after following some really particularly disturbing tweets from Jeff Gersman one weekend. Salty Bet was created, and I'll try and answer your question with this, but Salty Bet was created, I believe, during uh, a fighting game tournament or to coincide with one where there are actual players competing in a fighting game. What's interesting about fighting games in contrast to the RTSs and MOBAs that we talked about earlier with Dota and StarCraft 2 is that the fighting game scene has long been very active and competitive and, you know, often has been covered in the press at least in the games press, for being a little bit, shall we say, stuck in a state of arrested development, misogynistic, pretty much everything awful a person could say has been said at a fighting game tournament. It's not the kind of place you want to bring your kids, and it's not something I would ever really want to be engaged with until it kind of got its shit together. That being said, fighting game fans are rabid, and rather than sell out, and, and not to say this derisively, but like, Rather than sell out and get big sponsorships, make a big production out of it, fly people in from all over the world to do a huge tournament like the International, uh, fighting games usually come down to a big uh, event called Evo, which is largely fan-run, not really for money, and is kind of just in a really charming way slapped together every year, where the best fighting game players in the world all fly out to Las Vegas. They play the best the fighting games they love. The best players kick each other's asses. It gets kind of ridiculous. Uh, it sounds like a really kind of debaucherous event. And they all walk away kind of happy and probably really hungover at the end. But they have they do what they want to do with it. So rather than, you know, try to broadcast some huge event on Twitch that's, like, professionally produced with, like, I don't know, cameras and boom mics and all this stuff. It's just, like, people filming stuff on their iPhones while people 
bash each other up in Marvel Marvel Three or like Persona Four Arena or Street Fighter Four. So it's like the guerrilla tournaments. Guerrilla tournaments. Yeah, or guerrilla if you want to do it in Spanish. Oh, I, I was picturing like large <laughs> apes. So just the the back door kind of Chinese checkers underground gambling dance. Yeah, you walk in and there's like a hazy, smoky back back room, and everybody looks up quietly when you walk in, doesn't say anything. And then dubstep drops. Yeah. At least when I watched a, a, a match of Salty Bet, that's what happened. But anyway, continue. Yeah, so Salty Bet is an online web... Uh, I almost said online website because I'm from the <laughs> 80s. Uh, it's a website where there's a stream of what used to be actual fighting game tournaments. And it was basically a virtual betting system where there was no real money being paid out. But you had this this fake currency, these Salty Bucks. And you'd see the two competitors and you people before the match would begin would place their bets. And whoever won, you know, that would determine the odds and the ratio of payout for winner, loser, you know, for the favored person versus the underdog. And you kind of just keep betting like that. And it was kind of a fun, uh, albeit addictive way for fighting game fans to kind of get more engaged with these rounds as they were playing out from home. Mm-hmm. Uh, once those tournaments were over, the site stayed up and it did a really kind of weird thing. Rather than just like replay fights or turn off the stream like any sane person would, they rigged it up so that it became a 24-hour streaming Mugen channel where random fighting game characters in this Mugen build, which uh, I'll cover Mugen in a second, go at each other day and night and people bet all the time on who's going to win. So the funny thing about Mugen is, uh, for those of you who aren't familiar, it's essentially a, an open fighting game engine where people have for many years now been importing and creating their own characters with movesets, artificial intelligence, uh, routines, all that stuff. In essence, it's like an open fighting game. So there are hundreds, if not thousands, of characters out there with some degree of like polish on them. And this crazy stream has all these guys going at random, one-on-one. Like You'll see Popeye fighting Sailor Moon, and you get the chance to bet on them. And all the while, this bizarre stream of like remixed video game music and dubstep crap is blaring and uh i lost like three hours to it this weekend because i just couldn't freaking look away so well yeah we um for those who aren't aware but we've kind of talked about this over the years nick acts absolutely has a predilection towards fighting games right yeah i love fighting games so if if you were to come to me kind of like what we're doing in this podcast, uh, me providing the layman aspect. So I am bad at fighting games. I don't really know a lot about them. I know about the games in general and the characters. For instance, when I watched a Salty Bet fight, I saw Cosmos from uh, the Xeno Saga series (laughs) fight uh, Rhino from Spider-Man. So, you know. And they're telling him, like, bitch, use your horn and stuff like that. So that, for those who haven't seen it, you, of course, like any sort of online webcam type backdoor smoke parlor. This is sound uh, yeah. even more lascivious by the moment. <laughs> they have comments and live comments on the side from all the people who are watching it. Um, it reminds me of, like, some shady Russian webcam thing. So that's probably why I, I have bad feelings about it. But anyway... Uh, during that, I, I'm just watching it and going, okay, like I get the concept of an infinite number of combinations, your dream matches as a fighting enthusiast or just a gaming enthusiast to see these crossovers 
happen in front of you and to just bet with fake money, which the salty dollars as part of that, that's not real money, salty bucks. So that's not real money. It's totally harmless then unless you do like Nick did lose hours of your life. So for me, what do I have to do to get interested in that? Like, is this just another niche thing for, for gaming that will just kind of pass or it just kind of seems so ridiculous that like, how am I supposed to get into it if I don't already like fighting games or if I'm not a fighting game enthusiast? Is that just, you know, so what deal with it or ignore it sort of thing? Or is there a a larger reward to this salty bet or their implications for it in the future and this kind of trend towards spectator sport and video games that will influence even the next gen or the current one. So I don't think you're missing anything by not checking out Salty Bet. I think it's a bizarre experiment. I don't think it'll be around forever. Uh, it's mostly just a really kind of dark corner of the internet where a horrible, depraved Twitch chat stream runs alongside full of my waifu memes and yeah and yeah always bet on DBZ slash never bet on DBZ <laughs> advice uh, it's it's pretty terrible but at the same time at, at, like at peak hours I think there have been like five thousand people watching and betting on this stream uh, or more and if there are five thousand people doing anything at one time together that's uh it's probably something to take notice of. I don't think that betting on CPU versus CPU fighting game matches in a really broken-ass engine has ever got to, like, become its own thing. Actually profitable. Yeah, but this is, like, my first ever foray into, like, a virtual gambling thing outside of, like, a poker game on my computer or something. Where, and, like, I don't mean, like, online. I mean, like, an offline poker game that you play by yourself on Windows 95 when you're bored and you don't have any other games to play. Or the constant gamble of the World of Warcraft auction house. I don't want to <laughs> think about those days. Aaron, we, we got out of there alive. We don't need to dredge that up. Never go back. Never. But yeah, people like watching this. And it's like kind of... Once in a while, you see two characters with decent AI routines and a real challenge. And it gets down to like the fifth round out of the best of five. And it's kind of cool. You can almost at sometimes think like it's like watching a real fighting game match play out. And I've enjoyed watching the Evo streams from time to time because I like watching high level play, especially like in Street Fighter. But adding the betting element is really unfamiliar to me. And like I've never, I'm fortunate enough to not have a, an addictive personality as far as I can tell. But about 15 minutes after I left that two hour binge of watching Salty Bet, I was clamoring for an app on my iPhone that would let me do the same thing. And I was like, wait, that's a horrible impulse. Why the <laughs> hell, after I leave the house to go get lunch with somebody, would I want to be watching the stream still? So there's something undeniably addictive to a few people there, at least. But it's kind of weird. And th- there's a lot of variance in laws around gambling in countries, especially when it comes to online gambling. So I don't think we'll ever see... I don't think we'll see a whole lot of movement around that, at least in the near future, for traditional games. But... So you're not going to see with this uh, sort of betting, you're not going to see that on the Xbox One and the PlayStation 4? No, I think that there would be too much blowback. And unless they can monetize it, uh, I don't think that they would pursue it. I think, But I think like ethically, some groups would speak out against those companies for doing that. So as it stands, Salty Bet is just kind of a, a bizarre experiment in, I don't even know what you call it, but it seems like there's something to it that might stick around. That's, I I guess, why I'm so critical of it in the five minutes I watched it. So really, my expertise here, 
Um, even though you kind of get the concept like you're talking about, you could spend hours and see some new things. It's still kind of in the first few seconds, you're like, okay, I get it. So then you're either hooked or you move on, right? Yeah. And I mean, like, make no mistake, it is incredibly stupid. There are so many better ways you could spend your time. But sometimes you want something incredibly stupid for a couple hours. Yeah. And it's free. And that seemed to work. Yeah. It's free. You can see Popeye fighting. <laughs> I don't know. I saw I saw the crappiest Gohan ever. Uh, like two frames of animation. Um, I saw... Uh, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> uh, Knuckles sprite from the Game Boy Advance Sonic the Hedgehog game fighting like... Black Widow from the Marvel Universe. I was impressed the sprite work and uh, the the Mugen engine that she mentioned. I've never really encountered that before, so that explains how that's even possible. But yeah, I, I guess what I'm taking away from it is you know don't take it seriously, of course. But you're right. If it has that hold on you, um, I'm sure you're not the only one. So if that carries over into being something or becoming more concrete, I mean, who knows? I wouldn't be surprised if there was some sort of Kickstarter in the next few months, if it's jumping off the popularity. I mean, not a great comparison, but DayZ was just a popular mod that happened and kind of became this cultural phenomenon in the games world. And now it has its own full fledged title coming out. And it's funny to me that it starts on PC again. So a lot of these underground PC things, be it Dota, which, you know, like you mentioned, there's millions of dollars being given out. So it's not so just mom's basement anymore. But these originally kind of hidden, obscure aspects of competitive culture and gaming keep coming up to the surface. So I guess that does say something about the nature of gaming, that there is this instant appeal, and we've had that for years, be it achievement points or uh, scoreboards and leaderboards on the first video games that have come out. So there's always been that element of competition, but it still seems like it's targeted towards a very small and hardcore group of people because... The gamers like me who really don't care about their score or for setting other scores or beating their friend's high score or whatever, it really still holds no appeal. So do you think that maybe to kind of tie that in with the the streaming and the live streams that I know you, which you can talk about, you've been doing recently on Twitch and the live streaming that's coming to the next gen home consoles and still exists on the PC, of course, do you think that that's more of the gateway into this, this culture than um, the tournaments and the betting on salty bet. I think it's both. That's what stood out to me as one of the biggest things when the PS4 and Xbox One were announced was this heavy emphasis on streaming technology, not just for uh, the PS4's Gaikai integration to stream older games to your console to play, but this this heavy emphasis on sharing gameplay content. So streaming yourself playing a game, being able to uh, jump in and take over for a friend while they're playing, all that kind of stuff. It's Interesting, because I think that Microsoft and Sony are seeing how quickly people have latched on to things like Twitch and Ustream, which have, admittedly, still pretty high barriers to entry. You're quite, you know, you're either buy some streaming software and configure it all, or uh, like me, use the cheap open source version like open broadcasting software and spend an hour calibrating that to work fine for what you're doing. Games have always been social, though, right? Like when we were kids, we would have friends over to or go to their their houses to check out the new games that they got. Or rent a game for the weekend and like trade off playing it or pick up two player games just so you could play them with friends. 
it's always been about showing off cool stuff. You talk about how to get like the last heart container in Zelda when you're at school, whatever. And I think what they're just capitalizing on is that the more that people turn to their friends for uh, to enhance their gaming experiences, the more engaged people are with their hardware and the more likely they are to buy new software. So I think that enabling streaming and turning people into content producers much more easily than ever before is what they're all betting on, what Microsoft and Sony are heavily betting on. And I think it's a very smart bet. Speaking from my own limited experience on streaming, I did a little bit of streaming of Prince of Persia 2008 just to test things out. And then a few hours of Rogue Legacy as I fought through like the second half of the game. I didn't get a whole lot of viewers other than I think Spencer tuned in for a bit and uh, James was there offering some feedback from time to time. But I did get a few people here and there who I didn't know. And it's a weird feeling to be talking through a game and kind of trying to present it as you're playing it. Mm-hmm. I was going to ask about that. My own sense of paranoia and anxiety, I feel like I'd be... <laughs> I'm very self-critical when I'm playing games. And anybody who knew me when I was 6 to 15 years old could tell you when I was playing games. I wasn't really a, an asshole about it. But if I was told, oh, hey like say Banjo-Kazooie, oh, look, there's a there's a Jiggy or whatever up there. And I'd say, yeah, I know, I'm just getting this first. So I, I would always feel like I was being observed and critiqued. So did you feel that on doing a live stream? Does it feel kind of this weird? No. Um, okay, so what's it like? So not the way I did it, because I was the only voice I heard. If I had other people commenting with me or watching over my shoulder, I would probably get pissed off too, because... Again, playing game is not super easy when you're trying to field other conversation and take in their advice while you're going. But I've always been, you know, maybe selfishly attracted to this idea of talking through games that I found really interesting or thought had something worth sharing in them. Uh, like I even joked about putting together like a essential games curriculum complete with like save states that you would load up and then jump into to accompany your reading and lecture for that week again i've really fucked up hobbies it's okay (laughs) but it's not a vanity thing it's a sharing thing right it's about for me it was like i want to share this experience because rogue legacy is in my opinion a pretty cool game i've spent a lot of time with it and i i enjoy thinking about things to an (laughs) unhealthy degree maybe but i like picking apart what makes things work and it's a big part of why i've enjoyed game criticism and why you and i are running this site along with the esteemed Sashwatch crew, but it's really why we started it, too. It was like we wanted to keep writing, and we wanted to talk about why games matter to us. Not just the games that matter, not just the ones that we think are really cool, but we wanted to pick apart the uh, the things that make that happen. That's why I tried streaming. I just wanted to talk about some games I found interesting, and I hadn't thought much about promotion or building an audience. Frankly, I'm terrified of ever potentially becoming internet famous because it sounds like that ruins your life without exception. But I like talking about this stuff, so I might get back into it at some point, especially if I had a game where I felt like, for example, like Grim Fandango, something I played a hundred times. I know inside and out. I've read all kinds of interviews about it, and I can kind of add that commentary to it as I go through it. So it's almost like making your own director's cut for a game. Yeah. Like picture, picture a Valve game that you pick up in the last 10 years, and it has that commentary track you can go through while you're playing. Mm-hmm. I really liked that on my second playthrough. I did that with Portal. I did it with Half-Life 2. Uh, I'd love to do stuff like that. I think it's a fun way to talk about games. And when you're able to give a real-time example, that's something that you can't accomplish in writing as easily. So I like that component of it. 
As for whether the majority of people who buy consoles are going to want to do this stuff, that remains to be seen. My biggest fear is that everybody's going to produce content, it's all going to suck, and you can't find the good stuff. But I think they'll do a better job than that, hopefully. So, uh, I actually have a question for you on that point, because I know that you're, um, and I, I say this respectfully, um, <laughs> our in-house curmudgeon. Yes. Even Luddite might be correct. Absolutely. <laughs> so, you, you have both these consoles pre-ordered, the PS4 and the Xbox One, right? I do. Cool. I'm glad you're biting the bullet on that. How do you feel about the streaming software and this emphasis on sharing? You know, the PS4 even has a share button now. Do you see yourself dabbling in this a bit? Does it sound appealing to you at the outset? Do you see yourself maybe wanting to watch other people play? What's your take on it? Well, I guess my gut reaction is, ah, it's a bunch of bullshit. Or, and, and that's honestly just the first thing I think of. But it's only because, it, to give my my history with not new technology because I'll be the first guy that will run out and buy, um, I don't know, some Bluetooth headset or mechanical keyboard because it's gotten really good press and people like it. So I, I don't shy away from technology, but the service aspect of technology is still something I am skeptical of. I'm still barely getting involved with Twitter, let alone the multitude of things you can do on Facebook to LinkedIn to whatever. So social networks are still something I I participate in, but I'm, I haven't given all of myself over to. So with gaming, it's still a really hard habit for me to break out of to be sharing that because I have considered them such a personal experience. Uh, I've enjoyed and would much rather at this point still talk about my experience playing a Zelda game than I would live streaming it. Not that Nintendo has that capability on the Wii U, but you know, beside the point. So my initial skepticism is that having a share button on the PlayStation 4 controller, having it right there and accessible, it, it will make it easy for me to try it. But who am I trying it for? Am I trying it because of myself, I'm trying to self-promote something that I did or I think is cool or the game's cool, or am I trying to... I don't know really what my goal would be with it. So once it exists and I see the ecosystem growing, because you know, really this is a really amazing and interesting way to think of content creation and not just um, game criticism, as you put it, which we try to do, in the form of words or even just a podcast, it's actually providing a visual um, live example and then dissecting it through there, which is why video previews and even stuff, for instance, even though we always mention them, giant bombs, uh, quick looks, that's kind of what they're doing, right? I mean, they're playing through a game and then discussing it or pointing stuff out. So I could see a value in the next-gen sharing and streaming from the perspective of uh, critiquing a game or even reviewing it. Maybe that's something we'll try out for Sasquatch um, when these consoles launch, seeing if maybe there's a way to add that to our content ecosystem. So I'm looking at it from a practical perspective, but from an individual uh, enjoyment level, I really do feel lost, and I think they're really going to have to wean people like me, because there are still a lot out there, onto this idea, and I don't know if I've seen that yet, other than announcing this technology exists. I haven't really seen the incentives, so I feel like if you don't get it by now, you're really not going to get it, and you just might stumble upon its benefits later. It's probably true, and I think that it's going to be on the platform holders to really 
figure out how they're going to entice people to give it a shot. Because, like, many people will see this and be like, what's the point? I don't really want to be broadcasting what I do. Yeah. Personally, I see it as, like, I'm looking forward to seeing the ridiculous stuff that my friends capture on video and share it with me. But I'm not going to be going out of my way to watch some random dude play Watch Dogs uh, in his underwear while, like, smoking weed. It's going to be... I hope there's a rating system of stars or... Uh, letter grades, I'm sure that will be there. But I also hope there's a uh, badge system where you can just put a weed logo on all the videos that are just a bunch of people smoking weed or bong hits in the background so you can avoid or just watch those ones depending on your persuasion. Yeah. Seems like it's a win-win, actually. (laughs) I I guess if I maybe pull the uh, throttle back a little bit on my negativity, the other last week... I'm in the process of uh, selling a bunch of my old video games. And I did post a video that I took on my iPad of stupid shit and mystical ninja um, Gomon from the Nintendo 64. And for anyone who hasn't played that game, they know it's, or, or who have played that game, sorry, they know it's super Japanese, like more Japanese yeah. than Mount Fuji. And it's, weird but i love it it's still a classic game to me so i just posted a little video on my facebook page of goman just he does this weird thing where if you i believe it's holding z and a on the 64 controller he'll do this like hump crawl on the ground and there's really no use for it that i remember but before i packed all my stuff up before i got rid of that part of my childhood i wanted to share that so maybe there is a benefit because you're right. I don't want to watch some underwear dude playing watchdogs, but I would want to watch you, for instance, uh, playing something like Rogue Legacy and talking about how cool it is or showing this amazing moment that would get me to maybe want to play the game or see it in a different way. So that could be a benefit to it. That could absolutely have. Um, which I'm assuming Sony and Microsoft want a way to create these narratives and share them. Because even if you play a game like Mass Effect one way, you don't see all the different endings. So that's a way to share that perhaps and not just rely on really shitty transferred YouTube videos to do it. Yeah, I I think you're right on. I think there's just one thing I wanted to add. So, So I heard Gabe Newell speak at UT a few months ago. I think I mentioned that on another podcast here. And one of the things that he mentioned that struck me more than anything when he was talking about Valve and the business model and how they've evolved the company is Valve sees games as needing a new definition from things you play or interactive experiences with friends or without friends or whatever. And how Valve is framing games now is as content creation platforms, and it's up to them to create the most compelling ones that allow people to make stuff that matters to them. So if that's the perspective they're taking, uh, that's heavily evidenced in the way that TF2 is now open for content creation. There was even like a, I guess an expansion that was entirely fan created. Uh, and then Dota with the international and all the effort they put into broadcasting that even from within the game. I think that there's a lot of wisdom to what he was saying. I think that Microsoft and Sony seem to be following a similar tax. So it'll be interesting to see what the impact is of having so much easier access to content creation, streaming and real time interaction with people playing games. Well, there definitely won't be a stop to it, and I'll just have to accept that it'll probably be better than I'm thinking it will. So it sounds like 
in the end, uh, I'm on the hook for <laughs> starting the Sasquatch Twitch channel when I get an Xbox One this fall. <laughs> or just start streaming Goemon. I'd watch that. Yeah, I'll have to find a way to do that. You think I'm joking, but that game is amazing. I would totally watch you play it. No, it is. It is. If anybody wants to track down a ROM, I'm sure you can. It's worth playing. But, well, Nick, do you have any other closing thoughts? No, that'll do it. Uh, thanks for humoring me, with, especially with the salty bad stuff. I know that stuff's idiotic. Yeah. I, I recommend anybody <laughs> goes. But it's magical. It's magical idiocy is what it is. Yeah. Yeah. Well, from everybody at Silicon Sasquatch, uh, we thank you for listening to this podcast. Again, I am Aaron Thayer, and joining me was Nick Cummings. Yep. And we hope you all have a great day after you finish listening to this wonderful podcast. So, And how could you not? <laughs> so subscribe on iTunes, go to our website, and check out the other content we do. Thank you again for listening. Thanks a lot. Sasquatch Podcast is a production of SiliconSasquatch.com. This episode featured Nick Cummings and Aaron Thayer, and was produced by Spencer Tordoff. The remainder of our editorial staff is Tyler Martin and Doug Bonham. If you'd like to hear more of our work or read our articles, please check out SiliconSasquatch.com.